From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. My name is Ali Hazelwood, and I am an author of rom-coms set in STEM, and my latest book is called Love Theoretically. Ali Hazelwood is a book talk sensation. Her first novel, The Love Hypothesis, was an instant hit with its themes of romance mixed with smart science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM, academic settings. Ali Hazelwood's new novel is called Love Theoretically, and it follows an adjunct physics professor struggling to advance her career in an environment rampant with sexism. When she forms a reluctant connection with an MIT professor at a job interview, well, you can imagine what happens next. I recently spoke with Ali Hazelwood about her experience as a neuroscientist, writing smart romances, and much more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. Here in the United States, we're so hubristic to think that English is the only language we need to know. And, and we travel everywhere and expect everybody to, you know, acquiesce to our English. So when did you start to learn English? I actually would say that you are kind of right. Like, <laughs> English is uh, is a very good, like, lingua franca for um you know, just to understand each other, um, it's it's much easier than any other language I have tried to learn. And mm-hmm. I know I say this while having a, a strong accent <laughs> and while making grammar mistakes all the time. But, you know, to, to be able to communicate in English is not super hard. Like I've studied Japanese and after years of studying it, I could not even order in a restaurant, <laughs> basically. So I, I, get, I guess I would say... It's fair that English is the the language between everyone. But I started learning it in middle school. Okay. Um, it was my third language at the time because I come from the north of Italy. And that's that's uh, um, the place where I come from. It's mandatory, or at least it was when I was growing up, it was mandatory to take German as your first foreign language. And then I kind of started a little bit. English in middle school and then um, for for real in high school. So do you write your books in English? Yeah, I do. Um, I've always written fiction in English. I think it's because I started writing uh, after I moved here to the U.S., like several years after, uh, I want to say four or five years. And also I started writing with fan fiction and uh, fan fiction is about media that are in English. So it made more sense for me to actually write it in English, you know. Mm-hmm. So can you give our listeners a description of Love Theoretically? So Love Theoretically is the story of a young physicist who is in the midst of applying for the job of her dreams, which is a professorship at MIT, except that when she goes in for her first interview, she discovers that uh, one of the people in the hiring committee is uh, the brother of the person she has been fake dating. So there, there is some hostility from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, it's it's your classic enemies to lovers uh, slash fake dating slash uh, forced proximity rom-com, I would say. 
I'm going to ask questions kind of all over the place because you kind of tackle a lot in this book. So first, your books are often called Steminist with a feminist spin on science, technology, engineering, and math world. And I know this is inspired by your own experience in neuroscience. Can you tell me a bit about your background and how you saw an opening for smart romance novels within this space? So I actually moved uh, to the U.S. uh, to start my PhD in neuroscience. And uh, yeah, and then I got my PhD in neuroscience. So I I was a neuroscientist. I was doing my postdoc when I first started writing long form fan fiction. And uh, um, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is that I don't think uh, that you you need to have, you know, a woman in STEM to have a smart romance. I, I think that really all romance is smart romance because it's written by women and, uh, or, you know, actually, no, I'll take that back. It's, it's just smart period uh, because, you know, it's a genre that usually celebrates love and connections and uh, it's not exclusively written by women at all. And it's something that I'm trying to like keep in mind more and more, but um, yeah, so I, I wasn't necessarily thinking, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to corner this slice of the market and I'm going to be writing uh, rom-coms about women in STEM. It was more that uh, when I started writing, I was, uh, you know, in academia and I was very frustrated and uh, academia has a way of being uh, your entire world and uh, you kind of forget that there's anything aside from, you know, being good in lab meeting and publishing that paper and, uh, you know, making a good impression on your advisor. So I think all I wanted was to kind of cathartically write about my experiences in academia. And uh, I guess I would say uh, make light of them and kind of make fun of a lot of situations that can come up in academia. And then, you know, I have to say my publisher has been really great in terms of like marketing my books about, you know, Steminist and about women in STEM and kind of like making it a thing, I would say. But I wouldn't say that it started with me wanting to be that. Can you talk to me about barriers women still face within academic and scientific fields? Of course. I mean... This really varies from, you know, the institution you're at or the field that you're in, uh, but it's it's definitely an environment that is still very much male-dominated, and uh, it's an environment where, you know, if you are a woman in a setting that is primarily male-dominated, you don't see anyone like you around, and you start feeling a little bit like you shouldn't be there, you know? And that's that's how I felt when I started my PhD. I was the only woman in a cohort of of eight people, and uh, I remember thinking, "Oh God, I have made a terrible mistake. I <laughs> I I am gonna be alone for the next five years." And that wasn't the case at all. Um, but I think generally, even though things are getting much better, uh, there is still a prevalence uh, um, of uh, you know men within the environment. So uh, sometimes it can feel very isolating for women who are in STEM. It's one thing to be a scientist, but you've written about a variety of disciplines. I mean, how do you how do you research each specific field? You've covered biology, neuroscience, physics, and other areas of science in your novellas. Or is it right. just something you know? <laughs> so I, I'm going to be super honest. Like neuroscience was a piece of cake. And that's why I went with neuroscience. I was like, hey, 
I'm done with doing so much research and uh, it was glorious. I could just literally vomit science words <laughs> and I was like, I know everything about this. I also really, uh, for Love on the Brain, my second book, I chose a branch of neuroscience that's very similar to my branch of neuroscience. So I really cheated with that one. <laughs> um yeah, for the other books, it's really just about researching. Um, I When I was in grad school, I had a lot of friends in a lot of different programs. So I take like little nuggets of the things that they would, I would say, complain about or <laughs> tell me about, you know, so there's a lot of like, oh, yeah, I remember that time um, this friend of mine complained about this thing that his, his lab mice were doing. And I'm just going to like insert it in the book. So there's a lot of little anecdotal stuff that is kind of a homage to my friends. But then, yes, of course, I I, I research it on the internet. I know nothing about <laughs> physics. My my third book is kind of focused on liquid crystals. And I think when I decided, I really liked the idea of liquid crystals, but I barely knew what they were. And uh, uh, there was a lot of reading that I had to do. So it seems that, you know, quote unquote, people pleasers are having a moment in romance books lately. We recently spoke with Emily Henry about her book, Happy mm -hmm. Place, and how people pleasing can be quite damaging. So Elsie is also a chronic people pleaser. Do you think that this is a frequent pattern for women in like in, in life, not just in romance books? You know, definitely. Like, I think it's very hard to grow up in a society where you are sort of constantly told that you should be liked by the people around you and that you should do whatever is possible to make the people around you like you. And, uh, you know, you kind of end up, uh, I would say, annihilating your own personality sometimes. So um, I definitely think this is a common occurrence. You know, I think it's, it's hard for everyone, not just women. I think generally... It's it's human nature to want to be liked, uh, but also it's human nature to want to be ourselves. And uh, you you have these two, you know, these two drives uh, that create tension within you. And you're like, oh my god, should I just uh, pretend that I'm another person so that I can be socially successful, or should I just say screw it and <laughs> and be myself? That is something that I personally, I mean. I'm in my 30s and I'm still there thinking about it. So I think it's definitely an issue. So your your main character, Elsie, she's a huge Twilight series fan. And is it just me or, or do Elsie and Jack have a similar dynamic as Bella and Edward? <laughs> oh, my God. I had uh, never thought about it. There is a, like I really liked the idea of... Uh, Something that I liked when I was reading Twilight and I was a teenager and I was eating that up. And uh, I love the fact that Edward was, you know, Edward could read everyone's mind except for Bella's. And uh, we have kind of this transposed in the book where Jack is the only person who can see Elsie and no one else can. So it's not like a one-to-one -one comparison, right. but there yeah, are these right. elements of uh, <laughs> no one really sees me but you, or uh, I can see everyone except for you. And uh, that was that was really fun to write. You know what, though? 
I would argue that Twilight has been so formative for me that I would never write something that doesn't have a little bit <laughs> of a Twilight dynamic in it. I just can't imagine that happening. There are a couple of little areas in the book um, that I want to touch on that just kind of made me curious, like beginning with faux. Is this a thing? Is there something you've come across in your research where like some business that fulfills the need to hire a fake date or fake partners? Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I I really wanted her to be a professional fake dater. It just felt to me like it would be a great compliment to her people-pleasing personality. So this idea of being a little bit shape-shifting and uh, of being able to kind of mold yourself into what you think others want. And uh, so that's how it started. And uh, I wanted her to be a fake dater, but then... As I was writing, I didn't want her to just put an ad on Craigslist because that is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, let's pretend that there is an app and everyone is vetted. And uh, so I don't have to feel anxiety whenever she's going on a fake date that she's going to be murdered and thrown in a ditch. (laughs) That was, was... (laughs) see, I'm so anxious that I'm even vicariously anxious for the main characters of the books that I write. That's where I'm at. (laughs) My producers and I were discussing the book last week and and discovered that Go is a real game. I mean, we were asking each other, do you think Go is a real game? And and we looked it up. And I I mean, I've seen photos of like the game board and have a vague understanding of how it works, but I didn't go as far as to watch videos or in in action or anything. So is this a game that you play? It's not. I (laughs) barely know the rules. Um, I just uh, have a thing for people who are very good at board games. I actually have another book coming out this year that is about chess. Um... Uh, is it my kink? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I just, uh, I, I admire a lot people who are able to dedicate a lot of time to learning a specific, you know, craft or game or uh, skill and uh, go falls under this, I think. Um, to be good at it, you have to practice a lot. And so I just kind of like the idea of Elsie and uh, Jack practicing, uh, you know, separately for years and years and years and being really good, being the best at go in their circle of friends. And then uh, sort of like, uh, you know, playing against each other and being like, whoa, we're equals. <laughs> that that was something that I really enjoyed. You know, in addition to serious themes like sexism and academia, you also touched on things like the fact that Elsie has type 1 diabetes and she teaches a gazillion classes at several colleges but does not have insurance. Talk to me about why it's important to bring focus to this issue. Yeah, the identification of uh, higher education is something that we, as in like we academics, talk about all the time. But I feel like I don't know if your average person who, you know, was smart and decided not to go on for a PhD or not to stay in academia. I don't know if they know about how like devastating it is that, you know, there are very few tenure track positions that are being offered at at universities right now. Instead, what universities tend to do is uh, they hire, you know, just recent graduates, uh, um, and then they pay them very little. They do not give them any benefits, and uh, um, they usually pay them by the class. And what they count is the hours that they spend teaching, but not the hours that they spend you know, preparing the classes or um, grading assignments and things like that. So we have this kind of like 
horrible storm of low pay, no benefits, no health insurance, um, a very precarious situation. And that is where a lot of recent graduates are at. There are fewer and fewer jobs because universities know that hiring adjuncts or visiting professors is much cheaper for them than to create new tenure track positions that are more stable and that offer these benefits. That is something I... You know, I, I've been wanting to write about an adjunct professor for a long time just because, you know, I, I'm like, do people even know that this is a thing? Maybe if I if I write about it in a book, people will, you know, think about it and, and then they will know. And uh, I really wanted Elsie to have a chronic health condition because I wanted to show how hard it is to have a chronic health condition that requires, you know, constant medication and uh, not having health insurance, um, it's uh, it kind of like added a ticking time bomb element. Uh, and also it made it even more important for her to get that job, the tenure track job at MIT that she's applying for. I read online that when you wrote your second novel, you found it a bit more difficult because you were you set out to write the entire book versus releasing chapter by chapter as you started your first book. And I'm I'm curious though is if a book is released you know all at once instead of in serial form is there a benefit to that because if you become stuck on chapter eight but you can go back to chapter four and tweak something to get unstuck is there something beneficial to writing a book you know from cover to cover before anybody sees it versus releasing chapter by chapter? Yes, one hundred percent. Like from a craft point of view. It's, it's better to write an entire story. Like what I usually do when I write a book is I will write the first draft that is basically me telling myself, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is the story. And then I edit it once and then I edit it again. And I make it so that what happens in the end, uh, I, I make it so that the, the payoffs have a setups and the setups have a payoff. And if you're writing chapter by chapter, it's it's very easy to lose track of a stray payoff or a stray setup. So yes, 100%. It's also really helpful to have an editor who kind of, you know, helps you go through your stuff and be like, hey, by the way, I think you should tweak this part. Um, the, the thing, here's the deal. When you are writing chapter by chapter and publishing chapter by chapter, which is what I was doing when I was writing fan fiction, um, in a way, whenever the chapter is posted online, you can't go back, which means that you can stop obsessing about whether <laughs> your choice was right or wrong because the choice is made. While even now, like the book, the book that I'm writing now, I am still wondering, yeah, on chapter 30, if that thing that I chose in chapter one, should I go back and change it? Should I not? So, you know, there are goods and bads. It's it's a completely different uh, medium. I would say that fan fiction and like writing a novel are not comparable, even though there is a lot of like... Um, People going from, you know, being a fic writer to being a, a romance writer. And uh, there is a lot of overlap between the two. I, They're just two different types of craft, I would say. So some of your characters from previous books made cameos in love, theoretically. Olive and Adam and, and B. What's it like to have these characters visit you again? It's fun. I really liked writing about Olive and Adam, uh, especially because they made sense in the story. 
the the cameo was something that came about pretty organically. I was like, okay, at this point, Elsie needs to hear some things and who's the best person to tell the stuff. I was like, hey, you know who has gone through something very similar? You know who would be at the same position in life at the same stage in her academic career as Elsie Olive and so it was really fun to kind of introduce her and have her chat with Elsie and then it was of course fun to like show where she's at with Adam and the show that you know yes Elsie and Jack are kind of struggling and trying and trying to figure out where they can even be together but then you have uh, Adam and Olive and they're happy um, so that was that was really fun. Now, I understand you have a young adult novel coming out in November. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about the difference between writing romance in a young adult novel versus an adult romance novel? I mean, the obvious difference is that if you're writing for um, people who are, you know, younger, you kind of have to hold back a little bit. Uh, there are certain themes uh, and well, certain, you know, the explicitness of sexual situation can't kind of be as... Uh, unhinged as as we have in adult novels uh but aside from that I don't know that it felt that different I I think the way I approach writing a romance is okay I have this character and this other character and they have a specific dynamic and you know they are going to have to fall in love what's going to happen what can be the course of action what are they going to do that is going to make their specific love story special I think I personally approach writing young adult like I, I approach writing adult and and then I worked with you know my editor and uh, my agent and uh, you know it was very much a book that I wrote and then when I was talking with my editor and my agent we were like okay so what is this is this a new adult is this a young adult is this uh, um an adult like it, it was uh, it was less uh, something that I was thinking of while I was writing the book and more something that kind of happened post hoc. Mm -hmm. So your first book, The Love Hypothesis, really made a splash on TikTok. How has that impacted your work? You mean my work? Uh, uh, what work? <laughs> as, a, as a writer. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I have to say it gave me so much anxiety. <laughs> yeah, 2022 was my year of uh, of anxiety. It's just like, you keep wondering, can I follow that up? Are people going to like my second book? Am I going to fail and disappoint everyone? Am I a one to wonder? It's something that you constantly ask yourself. I think uh, it made writing a little bit hard just because, especially at the beginning, I didn't know to stay out of reader spaces. So I would, you know, read reviews. And uh, that's, that's stuff that you internalize a lot. Like uh, if you read negative reviews, then when you are alone at your computer writing you kind of hear the voices in your head and it's it's very hard to kind of like let go and be free in the creative space so I, I would say last year was kind of rough for me um on that on that end but it was like also really good for me to learn what I can and can't do and one of the things that I cannot do is be online and so I kind of stopped and it was really great uh and now things are great. Uh, it's been much better. Um, and I, I feel much less pressure now that I don't really know what the reception to what I write is. It's uh, It's been really good this year. Well, the book is Love Theoretically. Allie Hazelwood, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. That was Allie Hazelwood, author of the book, Love Theoretically, which was published by Berkeley. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Carly Cooper. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet. Thank you.